Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Car explosion kills daughter of Alexander Dugan. The daughter of Alexander Dugan was killed Saturday when the car she was driving exploded near Moscow. This is according to Russia's main investigative authority. A Toyota Land Cruiser went off at full speed on a public highway and caught fire, it said, after an explosive device planted under the bottom of the car on the driver's side blew up. The driver, identified by the committee as journalist and political scientist Daria Dugina, died at the scene. It is said early evidence pointed to a murder for hire. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst and friend of Ms. Dugina, Mark Schloboda. Mark, welcome and our condolences to to you on the uh, the passing of your of your friend. Uh, Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's uh, always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour, and uh, we should extend our condolences to um, Alexander Galevich Dugin and his family. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us what you know. You worked with uh, Alexander Dugin. You also, I believe, worked with his daughter. Tell us what you know about this incredibly, incredibly unfortunate event. Yeah, um, I, I did. I worked at, uh, I taught at Moscow State University in the sociology faculty with Professor Dugan. Uh, so I interacted with him on a regular basis. And uh, I also became acquainted with his daughter, whom I had a great deal of personal admiration for um, as a uh, beautiful soul, as an academic. Um, she was um, uh, very much a world person. Uh, she spoke several languages fluently, uh, prominently among those French. Uh, she had a great love for France, uh, French culture. Um, and um, she was a budding philosopher herself. She had just finished her doctorate uh, in philosophy. Um, and you could say that she served as a uh, philosopher, as a journalist, as a political activist. Um, and it is a tragedy that at just 29 years without any conceivable justification, uh, she was assassinated in a bloody act of political terror. Um, it's made all the more um, hard to believe in many ways that it that it, it took place because Professor Dugan uh, and and his daughter, who who you know w often worked uh, alongside him, was a marginal political figure in Russia. This is contrary to the sea of disinformation that is presented in the Western media that uh, he was Putin's brain had influence in the Kremlin or um, that he was somehow the architect of the Russian intervention in Ukraine. And that that is all complete and utter uh, balderdash. It's false. It's, there's not a, a lick of truth to it. Um, he was a marginal political figure. Um, he 
um, has never met or spoken with Putin, neither has his daughter. Uh, he had no influence uh, over uh, anyone in the government or policy whatsoever. Uh, what's more, um, he took a very strident view against the Putsch regime in Ukraine, particularly in the aftermath of the Odessa massacre. Um, and he had good reason. Uh, his family is actually has Ukrainian roots uh, from Poltava. Um, so um, when the Kremlin took another tact toward at the time, uh, away from some type of active military intervention and tried to push the Minsk Accords and settle, uh, help settle the Ukrainian civil conflict with a political reconciliation uh, with the West on board with it, it or so it was believed at the time. Um, Dugan was pushed out of his position at Moscow State University as a professor uh, because of uh, you know the focal with which he opposed uh, such measures. Um, and uh, he was basically informally banned from uh, state media and the political talk shows in Russia, at which he had been a, a regular feature as, as kind of an agent provocateur. Um, and he's lived in, you know, relative obscurity ever since. Um, but he is blown out of all proportion in the Western media uh, as some type of caricatured bogeyman. Um, and that is then used to tar Putin when there is no literally no connection between them whatsoever. Dugan was frequently critical of uh, the Russian president. Um, in fact, uh, he wrote a book, Putin Against Putin, where he talked about the conflicting sides of his foreign policy uh, and domestic impulses and suggested that he was often naive and an appeaser of the West. Uh, so, no, his his views were, were not considered in the Kremlin. They were not the architect of, of the Ukrainian intervention. But the Western media, by conflating this bogeyman, um, they created a target because the Kiev regime, utterly unable to conduct counteroffensive or any type of military success on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine, but needing victories to retain uh, a sense of strength and political control in the country and the flow of money and Western arms, they need victories of some sort. So they've turned to sabotage acts, to, to nuclear blackmail, and to the cold-blooded murder of a 29-year-old woman in Russia. Because uh, it was intended to kill both her uh, and Professor Dugan from from what we know um, and, and we have it from people in Kiev. Um, and um, this was because whatever the reality, Dugan was this bogeyman in both Western media and in the propaganda which the Kiev regime put out. So killing him would be seen as striking back a blow against the the intellectual, the, the the demon philosopher behind the Ukrainian intervention, which is just utterly false. But it doesn't make any difference because we are not dealing with reality here. The meme is the reality. We're living in this postmodern disinformation war. Um, and that's why 
uh, they were targeted. Um, we know they were both specifically targeted. Um, this woman, uh, this Ukrainian who uh, conducted it, she actually brought her 12-year-old daughter with her into the country as cover, I, I, which – I mean, mothers everywhere must surely take a grievance to the fact that you know, she not only she put her own daughter at risk to kill someone else's daughter. Um, it's it's pretty unbelievable. But that becomes more believable when you find out that she previously served in the neo-Nazi Azov battalion, uh, as well as someone else she is affiliated within the SBU. And when you realize that the Ukrainian intelligence service is riddled with literal neo-Nazis, then it all becomes a little more understandable, I think. Um, what do we know? I also understand that she escaped into Estonia. Um, what else do what do we have any further information on on this that you know of that you can release? Yeah, um, right now the Estonian government uh, has responded to media inquiries that it has not received any um, official inquiries from Russia at least as of a few hours ago, and um, it, it basically made clear uh, in their uh, public announcement that they wouldn't respond even if <laughs> even if they had uh they they uh were basically acting in a very protective way uh of this assassin uh and we certainly have heard no words of condemnation of the act from any western governments um which is not surprising because uh, Dugan was on the sanctions list of several Western governments, and his daughter, Daria, was actually on the sanction list of um, the uh, British government. Uh, for what conceivable reason, I, I really don't understand other than she had a political opinion that they didn't like. Um, we, I think there are serious questions um, about – Russian a failure of the Russian intelligence services and border security. Um, if they were able to so quickly find out who she was, her background in Azov and then in the Kiev regime's intelligence services, um, why was that not discovered when she entered the country a month ago in July? Um, why why was she allowed to enter the country so freely? Um, why was there not a watch on people from Azov or people a closer watch on people from Ukrainian intelligence? There's a question of the explosives uh, that she used. Did she bring them into the country with her? Did she acquire them from someone here? Does she have other accomplices that we don't know about? We don't even know for sure that she committed it, but we do know that she was definitely involved. She was surveilling Daria. She actually rented out an apartment in the same building where Daria lived in order to surveil her over the last month. Um, and then she and her daughter both followed Daria uh, and her father to this uh, tradition uh, and family festival um, where um, the bomb was planted uh, underneath the driver's side uh, of Daria's car. Uh, both her and her father were expected to be in the car. Um, her father uh, actually got a ride home with someone else, uh, which um, reportedly he was having a conversation with and wished to continue it on the way home. Uh, and the 
explosive was uh, detonated uh, remotely, um, killing uh, Daria uh, presumably instantly uh, on the road on the way home, after which uh, immediately uh, this person, uh, this um, Natalia Volk, um, seems to have fled to Estonia. Any indication of complicity with outside sources or forces? Yeah, we don't have any evidence of that yet, other than the refusal of any Western governments to condemn this act of assassination and political terror against a a young female academic. Um, th- there has been no word of that so far. And we know from the battlefield uh, that the Kiev regime's military is a complete proxy. I mean, funding, training, uh, intelligence, uh, battle updates, targeting weapons, everything from U.S. intelligence. We know that uh, from the Washington Post that uh, their military can't even uh, take a shot of the HIMARS units without getting approval uh, from Western governments. We know that the CIA has had an office in Kiev. Um, If we extend that control of the Kiev regime's military uh, to its intelligence services, then it is not at all far-fetched to believe that Western intelligence services might have had a role at least in greenlighting this act of political terror. And only about a minute left. What do, what is the what are the reactions? Um, you know, on television, what's the reactions of the Rus- Russian people? Um, mourning and fury. Um, uh, President Putin has already extended uh, his condolences to the family uh, and declared the young woman to be, uh, you know, basically a treasure in the making who was taken too young and a true patriot of the country. And that the Russian people's will will not be broken, but will only be resolved uh, in the face of such a heinous uh, murder uh, and political terror. Mark Schloboda, again, our condolences to you on the loss of your friend and also of your colleague. We really appreciate you giving us this time during this time. And as always, we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Asia Times reports Japan wants to point 1,000 cruise missiles at China. Japan is considering the deployment of 1,000 long-range cruise missiles to improve its counter-strike capabilities against China. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. As always, Ken, welcome back. Hey, good to be here. So the report notes that the missiles will be modified from the Japan Ground Self-Defense Forces Type 12 subsonic anti-ship missiles, increasing their range from 100 to 1,000 kilometers. The missiles are to be deployed from ships and fighter jets and are planned to be based on Japan's southwest island of Kaishu. 
Uh, help me out, Ken. Where's this coming from? Is is this the United States pressuring Japan to do this? And, and the reason I ask is because the response that Nancy Pelosi got when she went to Japan from the reports that we read, she got basically the basic decent treatment. It wasn't as though she was welcomed with red carpet and open arms. And so I'm just trying, I'm wondering, is there a correlation here? What what does this say to you? Well, I think this is part of an ongoing effort of the United States to try to, you know, kind of bolster its military position in the Western Pacific. We've talked a lot about, you know, the eroding American uh, imperial uh, sort of frontier there. Uh, obviously, the U.S. is very focused on its encirclement of, uh, of China, the effort to, uh, you know, contain China, as they say. Um, and, and I think that this is, this is a part of, of that ongoing process. You're quite right. I mean, Pelosi's visit not just to, uh, to Japan, but, of course, to South Korea, where the Correct. president wouldn't even meet with her. Uh, you know, she didn't she didn't exactly uh, have a triumphal march around Asia. Uh, and I think that uh, that there are probably serious concerns on the part of leaders in Japan about what the future holds and how they should uh, navigate this situation. Down down in that article, there's also an interesting uh, passage where one of the Japanese defense officials talks about how, you know, they don't actually have quite the level of technology and the level of information and intelligence to fully maximize the use of this uh, these new systems uh, by themselves. So what they're planning to do is actually just integrate all of this into the American command structure. Mm. And mm. so, you know, this is not a completely independent Japanese gesture. This isn't the Japanese saying, oh, we need to beef up our situation. This is something that I think has probably been uh, at least, shall we say, encouraged by the Americans and obviously is going to be implemented in collaboration in conjunction with the American forces. You know, we have 35,000 troops in Japan at a number of different bases. Japanese military is uh, deeply integrated with the American system. And I think this is just one further step along that path of trying to, to shore up America's military position in the Western Pacific. Last week, as a follow-up to this, last week we, I think it was last week, we were talking about North Korea and Kim Jong-un forming a stronger relationship with China and possibly Russia. And then uh, Kim Jong-un has also, I think, launched a couple missiles into the sea. Does this factor into that as well? Oh, sure. I think that... uh uh, you know, the, just just as there are, uh, you know, efforts to to uh, strengthen, shall we say, the ties with the United States and uh, and Japan and South Korea and all that. North Korea is, of course, uh, always on the defensive against American aggression, against American imperialism. There's tons of American troops in southern Korea as well, and I think that China uh, and and Russia. Uh, in in their efforts to to you know sort of steer clear of American imperialism, are the obvious natural uh, and and long established friends of North Korea. Uh, so yeah, I think that as as uh, Kim Jong Un has been able to to achieve some significant uh, enhancements of North Korea's uh, uh, defensive capabilities, its deterrent capabilities, that's also something that factors in here because you know North Korea is such a convenient target for American propaganda, for American politicians to talk about. Uh, uh, you know, they're, they're just, they've been painted as, as the, the, the scapegoats for so long that uh, that's, that's just an easy call. 
And so for the Japanese, you know, they're talking about implementing this measure, uh, most of which I believe is really directed towards China, but certainly uh, tossing North Korea into the into the rhetorical mix uh, doesn't doesn't hurt them. You know, the other thing I see is this. I see, you know, China certainly building up their uh, military capabilities, but they seem to have a real, you know, as an example, they just um, forgave a bunch of debt from like 23 African countries. China seems to be on a mission worldwide and Russia to really diplomat, uh, you know, expand their alliances diplomatically, that they see this as more of a long term. And the U.S. is kind of like, yes, we're going to gear up for a fight and get ready for a fight. It seems to me that the Pelosi move was almost like a punch at China to try to bait them into a fight. And I've been thinking, you know, we've been discussing this for a while. I don't think Russia or China are going to take the bait. I think they feel like, you know, time's on their side and that they're looking at this more as a long term building alliances, doing some other things. Um, And I'll add this. Even the Koreas, the Japans, the U.S. allies in the Pacific region seem very wary and concerned that there is a dangerous dynamic building up in their front yard. Your thoughts on all of that, Dr. Hammond? I agree with that. I think that, uh, uh, as you say, I mean, uh, certainly the Chinese, the Russians uh, as well, I think, to to a considerable extent, you know, they have a longer term perspective. They're looking at this in terms of developments that are going to take place not in the next month or six months, but over, you know, over years, decades and beyond, you know, and and that's just a difference in, in historical conception. American politics, American business, everything is driven on a very short time horizon. And, and I think that, that that influences the way that, that uh, policymakers in government or in, in corporations think. I think that, that their consciousness, their, their perspectives on things are very, very limited. They have very short horizon lines. Whereas, uh, you know, the Chinese, uh, uh, the Russians, and certainly no doubt the Japanese, the Koreans, the Southeast Asians, you know, they have a perspective where they're looking at a world in which, you know, international relations, if you will, the global order, however we want to characterize it, global geopolitics, is uh, is returning to patterns which historically were quite normal. You know, the, the leading role of China, the preeminence of China in East Asia, not as a matter of, you know, of expansionist imperialism or anything, but simply as a result of the size and extent of, of the population, the economy, the influence that they have, the, the trade that uh, that is carried on between China and its neighbors. This is something that historically was was the predominant geopolitical reality in, in that part of the world and to some extent in the world as a whole. And we're moving back in that direction. For those countries, you know, they have to look at it and say, well, our long-term interests are going to, you know, be to to sort of make the best of this and go along with this and see this as a kind of win-win situation. Whereas for the U.S., has been ride, you know, riding its global preeminence for a long time. That period is coming to an end, and uh, and they're freaked out about it. But the others around Asia, you know, have to have to be a little more realistic, a little more in touch with the real world than American policymakers uh, certainly appear to be. What about the dynamics of technology here and the types of missiles that are being? employed and deployed. When I was reading about the military activity that China, when China encircled Taiwan, they talked about the types of missiles that were being launched, and these were new, longer-range missiles. We opened this conversation with Japan employing new, longer-range missiles, and now we've got uh, China with their own uh, space station, 
And was it China that just launched a Russian satellite or did Russia just launch a Chinese satellite? But there just seems to be a whole bunch of technology involved here. China just launched their new uh, submarine fleet. There just seems to be a lot of technology here, and it's not going to look good for the United States. Well, you know, I mean, this is a function. It's just a material function of the growth and the expansion of the Chinese economy and the investment, which that has facilitated on the part of the Chinese in education, uh, you know, broad, broadly conceived, but most particularly in, uh, in engineering and science, uh, uh, all kinds of science. Uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, high-tech uh, systems and everything, but but obviously alternative energy. They're the global leaders in that. A tremendous amount of uh, investment in medical, uh, uh, the improvement of medical care and medical services and all that. But clearly, they've been able to uh, put a lot of resources, a lot of research, a lot of thought and, and initiative into uh, developing their, their military technology. And in a world in which, you know, they face uh, an increasingly hysterical American uh, imperialism uh, that constitutes a, a very, very real material threat and which has been, you know, very, very happy over many years to deploy their, their military capabilities anywhere in the world that, uh, that they see as uh, sort of getting out of line. Uh, it's entirely rational and reasonable for the Chinese to be, you know, developing some kind of uh, self-protective capabilities. I think that uh, what they're what they're achieving these days is is pretty remarkable and pretty impressive. Whether it's hypersonic missiles or uh, the submarines you mentioned, the deployment of new uh, aircraft carriers, I thought it was very very telling that in the wake of Pelosi's visit. Uh, the what had been sort of the standard American uh, little bit of muscle flexing of sending a U.S. carrier fleet through the Taiwan Strait uh, did not uh, take place. Uh, apparently, there was no, of course, declaration that, oh, we're not going to do this. It simply didn't happen. And, of course, the American media didn't remark on that because they have to you know, listen to what emanates from the Pentagon and the White House. But uh, I thought that was very interesting. There's a recognition, as you say, that this is not it's not an environment in which the, the certainly still existent predominance of American military power, I'm not trying to suggest that the U.S. has lost its edge on that entirely, but it is a shifting uh, uh, playing field, shall we say. And I think that, uh, that the enhancement in defensive capabilities that the Chinese have been demonstrating uh, is being perceived and taken seriously uh, on the part of the United States. And I think that the restraint if we can call it that, that they showed in not sending the aircraft carrier group into the strait uh, is, a, is a good indication of that. And do you think that uh, China, as I said, what we're seeing now is that they're going to show restraint and that they kind of see that they're being baited, but they're not going to bite the hook? We got about a minute. Yeah, no, I think that, that they are. They've been very restrained in their post-Pelosi response, but I think they've also been very, very effective in demonstrating their capabilities. The, the actions that, to, that took place around Taiwan Island uh, certainly showed off a lot of, uh, a lot of what they're, they're now able to do and the directions uh, that their development is taking. And I think they're sending a clear message without, of course, having to do anything uh, out of control or, or truly responding to these American provocations, other than saying, you know, you really don't want to mess with us because here we are now. One of the things I read was some of the missiles that they used, they shot them over the island to demonstrate 
we can hit the Reagan before the thing even gets to the Taiwan Strait. So don't even send it into the area because we don't, it doesn't have to get into the Strait. We can hit it long before it gets here. We got 20 seconds. Well, I think, yes, that's, there, were, there are two things in that. One is, of course, that ability to project that trajectory. The other, of course, is that it was a very clear demonstration of the fact that, that those hierarch uh, uh, technologies you know, the, or, or trajectories, they take them out of radar range okay. so that you can, you, know, you can redirect at the peak of that, uh, of that arch, and you don't know where it's coming down. And there's not enough time to respond to that on the part of the Taiwanese. Uh, or the Japanese, you know, in that instance as well. So, yeah, these were very clear demonstrations of enhanced uh, capabilities. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here, guys. Good to talk. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Car explosion kills daughter of Alexander Dugan. The daughter of Alexander Dugan was killed Saturday when the car she was driving exploded near Moscow. This is according to uh, Russia's main investigative authority. We discussed this in the opening of the show, but thought that we needed to bring our next guest in to provide some insight into this since he has spoken to the possibilities of these types of assassinations taking place. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, he was the chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. He is Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. You wrote a letter to your elected uh, congressional representatives warning them of these very types of assassinations taking place on behalf of the Ukraine. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Look, um, on July 14th, the uh, Ukrainian Center for um, Disinformation or Countering Disinformation uh, held a convened a roundtable meeting, um, at which time they disseminated a, uh, a blacklist. This blacklist had 72 names on it. Um, many of these names were Americans. One of those names was me. Um, now, they, the, the, the people on the blacklist were accused of being Russian propagandists. But they went further, because at this roundtable meeting, which, by the way, uh, the Ukrainians who convened it um, are there only because their salaries are paid for by U.S. taxpayer money, uh, which was allocated to Ukraine as part of a $40 billion um, you know, allocation of money passed by Congress in May of this year, uh, including all three of my congressional representatives. Uh, their salaries are paid. The, the meeting was organized by a congressionally funded and, um, and mandated non-governmental organization. And the meeting was attended by two State Department representatives, clearly providing the stamp of approval for these proceedings uh, on the part of the U.S. government. So at this roundtable meeting, they promulgate this list. They call the people on the list 
Russian propagandists, but then they go further and they say that the people are information terrorists who should be arrested and prosecuted for war crimes. This is, uh, this is no longer a joke. You know, if you want to call me a Russian propagandist, call me a Russian propagandist. Uh, my, 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 my skin is thick. Um, you know, I'm comfortable with how the things I say and I write uh, will go down in history. I'm very proud of the archive of material that exists going back to my time uh, speaking out about weapons of mass destruction up through today. It will all withstand the test of time. If that's what being a propagandist is, being accurate, deciduous to the facts and truth, being, and, and, and being correct in uh, the assessment of probable outcomes, label me as such. But when you call me an information terrorist, you've now taken it to another level because now we're getting involved in questions of life and death. Uh, we know that Ukraine in the past has used blacklists um, as the basis upon which not just to arrest people, torture people, make people disappear, but to murder people. And it appears that this blacklist, this process that was initiated by U.S. taxpayer money to blacklist Russian propagandists, calling them for information terrorists, um, has now manifested itself in that which I warned you about a while back. They have killed the daughter of Alexander Dugan. Her crime was being a Russian propagandist. Okay, this is no longer you know, Chuck Schumer laughing, chuckling, whatever the hell Chuck Schumer wants to do. Blood is on his hands. Blood is on the hands of Chuck Schumer. Blood is on the hands of Gillibrand. Blood is on the hands of Paul Tonko and everybody else in Congress who voted for the expenditure of this money, which was used to propagate a blacklist that is now turned in to a hit list, a death list. And, you know, they may have pulled that list down under pressure. You can't find it right now on the Internet, but that doesn't mean the list doesn't continue to exist and that the people who were empowered by the hatred that was manifested in that list aren't acting out their most dastardly, you know, uh, deeds. They murdered an innocent girl. They murdered an innocent girl. They murdered an innocent girl. And the blood is on the hands of every American congressional representative who voted for that. It's on Tony Blinken's hands, the State Department's hands, Joe Biden's hands, this entire government. We allowed this to happen. It is happening in our name paid for by the U.S. taxpayer. Let me, let me throw something else out at you, too. You know, one of the things that we've discussed was the issue of the U.S. creating, whether it's or at least, you know, creating the incubation elements for ISIS and al-Qaeda and how they then go out and cause mayhem in other countries and terrorism in the Middle Eastern area. Okay. And we discussed this way back, that the U.S. arming, fomenting Nazi, uh, the Nazi ideology was going to haunt Europe, that these people would go out and do these types of terrorist activities. Okay, they did it in Russia. What happens now when they're mad at someone in Germany because they're not sending enough weapons? They're mad at somebody in France because they have a march and they say, you know what, we don't want to um, support uh, Ukraine anymore. And, and let me add this, and we've arm these people with 
all kinds of weapons, anti-tank weapons, etc. It seems to me, once again, now the, we've created these terrorists, we've armed these terrorists. I don't think that the move that they're going to make, that they've made in Moscow, is going to be the last. And we're going to see the chickens come home to roost all over Europe, where these heavily armed Nazis decide that anyone that goes against them is going to get blasted. Scott. Look, the ideology of Stepan Bandera, the history of Stepan Bandera, the individual who, um, you know, who has been now named and idolized by modern day Ukrainians as their national hero. This is a man who had no problem with his people surrounding villages, pulling thousands of people out of their homes and slaughtering them, men, women, children. Children, children, thousands, hundreds of thousands. This is a sickness. This is a disease. And the people today worship this man and worship his deeds. They are murderous thugs, and they will continue to act in a manner uh, which is reflective of the man they worship. These are people who assassinate. They do it. Uh, not just against political figures, they assassinate anybody who speaks out against them. This is why they surrounded villages and slaughtered the people inside, because somebody in that village said, we're not going to join your movement. So they killed everybody. Uh, and today you're 100% correct. This odious ideology now views anybody who dares speak out against them or undertake actions which are deemed to be harmful for the ultimate goal and objective of the Ukrainian nation, which means anybody who says, hey, wait a minute, we don't want to give you any more weapons because we think that's sort of foolish, you guys aren't going to win, we don't want to empty our cup, whatever, you're now an enemy, and you're an enemy that is marked for death. Please do not think that that is just speaking beyond the pale. These are murderous thugs murderous thugs. They killed an innocent girl, and they will continue to slaughter in defense of their sickened, odious ideology. RT reports Serbia issues warning to NATO. NATO's peacekeeping force in Kosovo should do their job in protecting the Serb minority in Belgrade, or Belgrade will do it unilaterally. This is according to uh, Serbian President Alexander Vucic. Uh, he said this yesterday. Your thoughts, Scott? The Serbs aren't playing around. Um, <laughs> you know, I, NATO, you know, lives in a world of of arrogance, and um, you know, through arrogance, they illegally created um, this this so called nation state of Kosovo. Uh, they empowered uh, Albanian uh, criminals, uh, black marketeers, smugglers, murderers. Um, you know, people who, who, who sell women in the sex trade, uh, they made them a government, they made them a nation, um, and the Serbians have rejected this. Um, there's not much the Serbians can do about the Albanian presence in Kosovo uh, and the 3,500 NATO troops that are there, but there is a significant Serbian population in northern Kosovo, and the Serbian government will not allow them to fall under the control of you know, a government they don't um, uh, you know, that they don't recognize, and the fact is, they recognize all of Kosovo to be part of Serbia. 
there's people who believe that the Serbians are bluffing. They're not, uh, they're not up to the task that, uh, that they, 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 you know, they don't have the internal fortitude to follow through. Uh, I think they're wrong. I think on September 1st, the world is going to find out just how serious Serbia is about defending the rights of Serbians. Also, uh, President Zelensky has warned against putting the Azov neo-Nazis on trial. Two minutes. Scott, your thoughts. (laughs) Good luck, buddy. They're going to go on trial. They're going to go on trial, and the whole world is going to see the extent of not only their crimes, but the um, fact that these crimes were ordered and mandated and facilitated by Zelensky and his government. This is the end of Zelensky in terms of the West being able to embrace him. He is going to be so filthy once this trial is done that the West, I, I'd be surprised if even the, the people in Miami who are you know safeguarding his $35 million home, if they would allow him in. This man is a diseased animal. These trials are going to expose that. And um, <laughs> nice try, Zelensky, nice try. And, and so where does he go? At the end of this, whenever it does end, what's his future? Where, where does he go? A, a comedy club on the, on the L.A. Strip? No, I, I, I don't think he has a future. I, I, I think he's going, he's going to be shot by the Ukrainian military. Okay, you've said you've been pretty consistent. He's going to meet some that, kind of an untimely demise, uh, you know, suicide. He's going he's gonna to take a ride like Sal, like Sal did in Godfather. <laughs> yeah. Can you help me, Mike, for old time's sake? Sorry, Sally. Not this time. One, one way. This ride's one way. <laughs> Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much. Actually, it was Tom, not, not Mike. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Current Supreme Court is damaging to the country, law scholar warns. Constitutional law scholar Lawrence Tribe is a professor emeritus at Harvard University. And for insight into this analysis, we turn to our next guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling, the entire portfolio. He has argued cases before the Supreme Court and won. He is John Burris. As always, welcome back. Good, Good to be with both of you guys. Um, I, it's, uh, I read the article and uh, and fortunately um, it sets forth a lot of views that I like myself have had um, over the last number of years. Uh, his, his, his historical reference, uh, going back to uh, Dred Scott, mm-hmm. to Professor Ferguson, these are significant milestones uh, that have occurred uh, in the judicial system. I, for one, believe these things have 50-year swings, and that uh, was 50 years from Dred Scott to Plessy versus Ferguson, and 50 years from Plessy to Board of Education, and then we had this little interlude uh, uh, about uh, during the uh, Warren administration, but since then, it's been on a very conservative track, uh, and, and it, to me, it may last indefinitely. And I, I think what uh, Professor Tribe is saying 
is that what the, what the court is doing is protecting a very narrow interest, a minority interest uh, in this country. And, and when I say minority interest, that is that is populations areas that have fewer populations from the bigger areas. But more importantly, it's really not. It's all about perpetuating the economic interests of rich people and also about making sure that the folks, um, the minorities and people of working class do not have more rights than they think they should have. And, and basically keeping all of us and many of us in bondage. When you, and, and Clarence Thomas, as I think I've said to you before, this is Thomas Clarence's court. It is not mm-hmm. in any way John uh, Marshall's court, not Marshall, but Rob, Thomas, Robert. mm-hmm. uh, Robert's court. It is Clarence Thomas's court and has been that way for some time now. And it's even more solidified. This is a very conservative, in many ways, a dangerous man who has no empathy at all for the rights of minorities or any rights that he says was not expressly stated in the Constitution. And as Lawrence Tribe says, most rights that we have now were not in the Constitution. We certainly have the basic Fourth Amendment rights, but none of the privacy rights that people hold dear were in the Constitution. If you listen to what Clarence Thomas had to say, you couldn't even have um, 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 interracial marriages because that's not a privacy interest that is not protected under the under the 14th or Fourth Amendment. And, and, and so basically many of these rights that, that we have now, and I dread to say this right to marriage, that's going to be out. The protection of, of um, uh, same-sex marriages, that's going to be out. Uh, the, the whole issue around privacy that was generated around uh, uh, sexual activity, same sex, that's going to be out if these men have their particular control. And even when you look at, look at the whole question of contraception, essentially what the Supreme Court, court, court is saying, that unless it was specifically provided for in the Constitution, and, and, that, and not the original Constitution, the one that was modified uh, after the Civil War, the 1868, then it does not, uh, it's not entirely, it's, in, it's not entitled to protection. And that's a dangerous thing. And I think that um, all these issues that we're talking about, Voting Rights Act, we've always seen what's happened with that and how important that is. And we know it's happened on some of the affirmative action question where race is involved. This court basically is sending it back that the minorities, particularly African-Americans, Hispanics, we're going to be not only minorities, but we're going to have minority rights as well. And as they say, we're going to be ruled. Um, by the folks that control our destiny through their economic power and political power. And that's a, a tragedy. And basically what Lawrence Tribe is saying is that the minorities will have no ability to go to the court and expect the court to protect their rights because they're not going to do it. And that's the tragedy of it all. You know, the other thing that comes to my mind, you know, coming from a law enforcement background, you know, things like Miranda and Esposito and those kinds of things, you know, I feel at this point that any of that stuff that they can get, any of those cases that they can get to the Supreme Court are going to go in a direction that, you know, as a person who believes in civil liberties, I would prefer not. Um, do you think I am, you know, kind of overstating that in in, the, in that in that? I don't know if you want to call it a belief, a fear, or assumption, whatever. I would hope not. I would like to think that the criminal law uh, procedural rights that have been established in Miranda and right to jury, or certainly right to jury trial, things those are fundamental to the Constitution. But Miranda was not, and so, but the right to an attorney 
uh, is. And so I don't think that the Miranda type issues will be set aside. I think we always have these questions as new technology comes into play and the issue of privacy and, and Fourth Amendment rights, where do they come into play at? Uh, we have, whether it's on cell phones or phone booths, issues that we discuss a lot in law school. Those kind of rights, I think, can be called into question, but I don't see them as much on the constitutional criminal law basis as I, as I do say some of the others. We also know on this whole issue around religion that we, we've always heard, all of us have heard, uh, the concept of separation of church and state. And that for a long time, that was kind of the principles. But that's not the principle anymore, because you can see this Supreme Court is more than willing uh, to allow uh, the integration of religion and religious uh, activities with um, uh, with private government, with governmental monies and governmental uh, uh, issues that people and services that are provided. So I think that um, this court, uh, as Tribe has said, is really not in the best interest of everyday working class people and that uh, there's a certain agenda. And as I said at the time, look, Roe versus Wade had nothing to do in terms of reversal with the law. It was all about the religious aspect of those individual justices. They believe that life begins at exception, period. And they didn't care whether there was any precedent, any laws, or any political considerations. They had their political views or religious views, and those became the views uh, that were being enforced. As he would say, there was no analysis done. And in fact, they made silly arguments. But it was all about personal agenda that these individual justices had about when life begins. And that's it, period. And anything that interferes with that, whether it's contraceptions type activity, they're not going to um, support it. And I think that we should all be concerned that the laws are going to move very quickly in and, and, uh, and, and that regard. I want to be clear. I, I think people need to understand you, you talked about the, the separation of church and state. Uh, I think people need to understand that's not in the Constitution. I believe, if I remember from con law, that was an utterance by Thomas Jefferson explaining the First Amendment, but it's not actually written into the Constitution. I, I wanted to also, if you can either confirm but, or— But let me just go on that point. Yeah. There is a provision that says that Congress make no laws that abridge a, a form of religion. Right. Mildly, so you cannot interfere with religion. Correct. Uh, in essence, what they just jump-started by saying, because of that, you cannot have religion in the, in the public square. Uh, when public issues are being decided, and religion should not be a part of it. I, I was just referring to the term separation of church and state. Yeah, that that's not in the but that but but that was Jefferson explaining the concept of the First Amendment. Professor Tribe says uh, he asked, "How do we get to this point?" He says, I, "I think a combination of a long game on the part of the far right. They've been very concerned with building toward the kind of court that Bork would have uh, represented." And he also talks about about Bork. In your opinion, have, have the Democrats misunderstood or just lost the concept of the long game? Because this, to me, we've been building to this point for 30 years. But it doesn't seem as though either the Democrats understood the long game they can't play the long game. I don't know, but they don't seem to have. And I would even take it back to the Powell uh, letter talking about business needing to get involved in politics in this country, what, what became known as the Powell, the Powell Doctrine. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do think it's uh, correct. And it, it, one could say very simplistic that one's playing checkers and the other's playing chess. Mm-hmm. And there's no question that the Republicans have played a long game here that goes back to Bork and maybe even before Bork. I'll tell you, I remember the discussion around Bork. And this is always about getting even for what happened to him mm-hmm. because they wanted him on the Supreme Court and, and they didn't they didn't get it. And it was a nasty, nasty fight. And many of the fights that we've seen with respect to the Supreme Court since then have been Bork-like. Mm-hmm. And Republicans or any Democratic nominee like we've basically seen is to get even. It's to remember Bork. And that's a, I thought it's like the cry of the, remember the Alamo. Well, mm-hmm. remember Bork. It's fundamental to all of this, but it is true, and I would say that the the, the, the majority, the minority leader uh, McConnell, is a master player here because he has ensured by his method of allowing for these conservative people to, to get on the Supreme Court, and he did it. He ramrodded them through. He, he gave no consideration to time or etiquette or anything of that nature. He was clearly designed, and he did that not only for the Supreme Court, but remember where the laws, the laws are being enforced at. They're being enforced at the federal level, mm-hmm. the district court level, the appellate level. And those are the courts that make all the decisions for the most part, but they're interpreting decisions that have been made by the, by the U.S. Supreme Court. So we all are caught in a situation where these people, uh, this philosophy is going to dominate our lives for a long time. The only thing that can mitigate against this to some extent, and that is if the Democrats can win the next election, national elections, because then you will have a time to overturn and, and appoint many more people in the federal court. It will not affect the Supreme Court. There will not be any appointments for a long time because these people who are in the in majority, other than Clarence Thomas, that's just one person, but everybody else is in their 50s and early 60s. And on the Democratic side, all those people are in their 50s and 60s. So there's not going to be much room. What we have now on the Supreme Court is what we're going to have for the next 15 to 20 years, easily. Uh, Clarence Thomas won't last 20 years, but certainly um, the issue will then become when does he leave strategically. Uh, Thurgood Marshall did not leave strategically. He could have stayed, but he decided to leave and gave the Republicans the appointments. That's rarely done by a Supreme Court justice. When they leave, they make sure that the party that appointed them is the one that will be in charge to appoint the next person. Uh, Thurgood Marshall didn't do that. And, uh, and of course, uh, the woman who recently left, she died Ruth. when she should have left earlier. Right. And she caused the whole court to be all screwed up. And I said that at the very moment that, I, you know, just bless her heart. But she was very selfish in what she did. And she has caused us to get what we have now. And all she had to do was leave, you know, when Barack was the president. And this never would have been a problem. One last article. Three law enforcement officers in Arkansas were taken off duty after video circulated online showing them apparently beating a man during an arrest. We got two minutes. Yeah, I saw that. That was horrible. But it's so classic. This is this is Rodney, Rodney King revisit a thousand times over all around the country. These men were beating this guy and, and beating him and kneeing him and punching him. Uh, and, and, and every time he had moved, they would hit him some more. And so he would be reacting. So then they ultimately charge him. This is, this is fundamental, the kind of beatings that take place in small towns in America these days. They don't happen in cities like where I am in Oakland or San Francisco because the, the consequences are too grave. And, you, and we got video cameras and cell phones. 
they had the they had the phones here. I'm surprised that officers would engage in this level of beatings and, and outrageous conduct in the face of having these uh, body worn cameras that are there filming them all. It would only suggest to me they think you can get away with it, that there's no repercussion repercussion for that level of conduct. They even threatened the woman that was taking a video, taking a video, and threatened her, and that's pretty common. I have a case that I'm working on right now out there in Western Arkansas where there were a bunch of uh, cops in a small town um, jacked up this black woman and threw her all around and and, uh, and, 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 and and charged her after punching her around and stuff. So there's this, there's a sense of lawlessness. Now, I will say this. Times obviously have changed. The Arkansas State Police is investigating it. That may not have happened years ago. Mm-hmm. That may not have happened. Mm-hmm. So there's some sense of progress that may very well be there. These men have to be prosecuted, though, for criminal conduct um, in order to give some confidence in the community and also as a warning and insurance to other officers that if you get caught doing this, there are consequences to it. Um, And hopefully, hopefully uh, the young man is not hurt too badly. John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Good to talk with you. Take care now. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. White House finalizes theft of Afghanistan's foreign reserves. The government of Biden has decided not to return Afghanistan's foreign reserves and suspended talks with Taliban officials over the issue. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The counter Revolution of 1836, Texas slavery, Jim Crow, and the roots of American fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Quote, we do not see recapitalization of the Afghan Central Bank as a near-term option, U.S. Special Representative Thomas West told the Wall Street Journal. Exactly one year after the Taliban took control of of Kabul, quote, we do not have confidence that that institution has the safeguards and monitoring in place to manage assets responsibly, end quote. Dr. Horn, that's that's the bank robber saying I'm not going to send the money back to the bank because I can't trust their security system. Well, there is a very delicate dance unfolding between U.S. imperialism, and the Taliban in Afghanistan. You get a glimpse of that by looking carefully at an article in the New York Times just today, this morning, speaking of August 22nd, 2022. If you look at that article carefully, it's apparent that Washington feels it can do a deal with the Taliban against the interests of the People's Republic of China by having the Taliban influence dissident Muslims in the west of China 
for example, the Uyghurs, of which you have heard so much of late, who Washington and others charged uh, Beijing with perpetrating genocide against them. So I take it that what is now happening is that Washington is dangling Afghan money before the Taliban. And if the Taliban goes along with U.S. imperialist policy, then they'll dress up somehow turning over these funds to the Taliban. Perhaps there'll be some concessions on girls' education, or perhaps there'll be the appearance of some concession on girls' education. And then what you need to look for next is Afghanistan being used as a point of destabilization against Western China. Uh, I should also say that uh, this theft that you have made reference to is wholly consistent with what's happening with regard to imperialist policy. You know, I'm sure, that after February 24th, 2022, the United States put the clamps on Russian funds to the tune, if I recall correctly, about $300 billion. We know that London has the clamps on like amounts from Venezuela that they have refused to relinquish because they claim that the Maduro regime is not the legitimate authorities. But back to Afghanistan, I think it's important for your listeners to understand the torturous history of relations between the United States and Afghanistan, because I think it's quite illustrative of the failing of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, if you go back to the early 1970s, Afghanistan was not this ultra-religious citadel that you see today. It was a country on the path to a certain kind of socialism, in fact. And in fact, it had a left-wing government. Mm -hmm. uh, the, unfortunately, the left-wing government in Kabul uh, had two wings. And then, of course, that was grist for the mill, manna from heaven for U.S. imperialism, as they sought to manipulate one wing against another. And then, as the situation was deteriorating, in December of 1979, the successful wing of the People's Democratic Party invited in the Soviet Union to help uh, uh, cease a religious insurgency sponsored by U.S. imperialism. You may recall, if you go back and look at the Rambo movies, there was a Rambo movie with Sylvester Stallone that featured prominently a glorification of an Osama bin Laden-type character. And so this was evidentiary of this budding alliance between religious zealotry against the left uh, in Afghanistan, and that succeeded. You know that the uh, last uh, left-wing leader of uh, Afghanistan, Najibullah, was not only lynched, he was castrated, a Negro style, uh, in Kabul, Afghanistan. And since that time, of course, there has been unrest. We know about the allegations about the Taliban uh, housing Osama bin Laden and his Confederates when they were said to have engineered the attack on New York and Washington in September 11, 2001. And so having said all of that, it would not be surprising that with regard to this torturous relationship between religious zealotry and Washington, that it might be due for another term. Uh, that is to say, the same kind of collaboration 
that we saw in the 1980s, but this time in the 21st century against the People's Republic of China and perhaps uh, even Russia as well. Here's a, I really wanted to hear get your thoughts on this. Um, Tehran, almost seven decades have passed since the U.S. orchestrated coup toppled Iran's then Prime Minister, uh, uh, Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. On the occasion of the anniversary of the U.S.-led coup in Iran, Ali Bahadori Jarami, the spokesman for the Iranian government, said Friday that, quote, putting trust in the United States in international ties is meaningless, citing it as one of the three lessons from, for Iran from the 1953 coup d'etat. Your, your thoughts on, you know, that incident and how it affects geopolitical realities today? Well, I think also in terms of putting trust in U.S. imperialism, the Iranian authorities are drawing an appropriate lesson from the bolting from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with regard to the negotiations between Iran and the United States and the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council plus Germany uh, with regard, as noted, to the nuclear accord, which Mr. Trump bolted from. And now the Biden administration is trying to knit it back together. But there's no guarantee that if Mr. Trump returns to power in 2025, he may bolt again. And so it's understandable <laughs> why the Iranian authorities are not going to buy that horse twice. But I also should say, with regard to Iran, that it also carries a lesson similar to that of Afghanistan. And once again, to continue the theme of the day, it goes back to this maniacal obsession with trying to stem the redistribution of the wealth, a policy that went under the name of anti-communism, a policy that certainly had the Soviet Union in its crosshairs, but also recall that in the run-up to the Iranian Revolution circa uh, 1979, that Washington was collaborating with the religious authorities in Tehran against the interests of a left-wing party, the Tudor party, because it was thought that they were too militant concerning redistribution of wealth. And so, to a certain degree, uh, when the Tudor party was weakened, if not uh, driven mostly into exile, or certainly driven below ground, uh, Washington, in a sense, got the result that it had plotted for, the rise to power of religious authorities, now they have a bone to pick with, but I'm not sure if Washington has a way out with regard to these particular rulers, although we know that they have been sponsoring, that is to say, U.S. imperialism, various uh, terrorist attacks uh, on Tehran uh, from around neighboring countries, and perhaps the ultimate option that Washington will pursue in Iran uh, might be the option that the right wing is planning here in North America, which is utter chaos. I just want to put a bow around your discussion about the United States and the Taliban and going back. I just want to ask this question, again, to put the bow on it. The United States has done this before. I think it was the United States dealing with the Mujahideen as the United States was trying to leverage the or fight Russia in Afghanistan, the United States did this whole, tried this whole game with the Mujahideen and it did not work. And so we're, this is basically deja vu all over again. Am I right there? 
And then the other point is, if you could elaborate on Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan gets protective bail in a uh, Pakistani terrorism case. Well, certainly with regard to the first point, when I was making reference to the U.S. dalliance with religious zealots, I was referring precisely to the so-called Mujahideen. You may uh, go online and see pictures Mm -hmm. of Ronald Wilson Reagan, the U.S. president between 1980 and 1989, uh, meeting uh, with these forces, soon to be designated as, quote, terrorists, unquote, meeting with them in the Oval Office, Uh, beards, turbans, and all. They were freedom fighters, we were told. Mm-hmm. But now, of course, as I said, the relations have soured, although keep your eye on these mon- these monies that the United States is holding that belong to Afghanistan that may be dangled to entice the Taliban into an anti-China alliance. Now, obviously, the events in Pakistan are a direct reflection of the fact that uh, former Prime Minister Khan uh, in February 2022 was to be found in Moscow. Uh, in a cozy chat with Vladimir Putin, this did not go down very well in Washington. Uh, soon thereafter, he was driven from power. And what's happening to him now and what's happening to his party is a further extension of that. Because once again, uh, Pakistan was seen as a valued ally of U.S. imperialism uh, for a good deal of the Cold War uh, because it was India and the Soviet Union in one corner, and Pakistan and Washington in the other corner. But now India is the fair-haired boy. It's being courted by all major powers, including uh, Washington. And Pakistan has lost some of this value uh, as a thorn in the side of India uh, because of this U.S. attempt to cozy up to Prime Minister Modi in New Delhi. And so it seems that Prime Minister Khan, or former Prime Minister Khan, is going to be a sacrificial lamb, but obviously he's not willing to fade from the scene willingly. Uh, List article, Palestinians uh, are staging a prisoner stage a mass hunger strike in Israeli jails. This is from Press TV. Your thoughts on that article? Well, you know, I'm sure about what happened in that part of the world in the last few weeks, uh, where the press reports were telling us that Another Palestinian faction dubbed as so-called Islamic Jihad uh, was crossing swords with the Israeli authorities and led to the deaths of a number of children. What's interesting is that we were told that uh, Hamas, a powerful force uh, in Gaza in particular, uh, was sitting on the sidelines, we were told, as this conflict was emerging. Uh, But that was probably a bridge too far. Unfortunately, what's happening now is that uh, Turkey, or Turkey, which had been an influential ally and comrade uh, of the Palestinians, uh, I'm sure you recall uh, that time that you can find online where President Erdogan and one of the Israeli leaders almost came to blows on an international stage because Mr. Erdogan's uh, objection to uh, Israeli depredations in historic Palestine, which, of course, the Ottoman Turks have ruled for centuries. But now the Israelis and Turkey have just been made up, and it seems that the Palestinians are pushed further into a corner, uh, which is not good news because history tells us that when they're pushed into a corner, they don't necessarily lay down and go to sleep. Uh, They fight back with vigor.
Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Pakistan charges former leader Imran Khan under Terrorism Act. Pakistan's former prime minister, Imran Khan, has been charged under the country's Anti-Terrorism Act, the latest chapter in a tense struggle for power with Pakistan's current government since his ouster. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be here. So the Pakistani police booked Imran Khan under the stringent Anti-Terrorism Act after he was accused of threatening an additional Sessions judge and a senior police officer during a rally in Islamabad on Saturday. He was granted protective bail from arrest until the 25th of August by the Islamabad High Court earlier today. Uh, What's going on here in Pakistan, James Carey? I think you're seeing um, a backlash that we've seen a lot of places to the sort of neoliberal austerity. And after COVID, uh, for the global south, that was going to be extra hard. Uh, Khan was very good with the economy. Khan was good at cleaning up corruption, from what I understand, you know, from the way I saw it. Um, So I think you see this populist sort of uprising in Pakistan that was taken out by a vote of no confidence in the parliament. You know, this wasn't a vote by the people or anything like that to remove Khan from the presidency. This was a vote of no confidence by the parliament who are friendly with NATO, friendly with the U.S. and all these, you know, they're a bulwark against China. There's a lot of geostrategic reasons in the world. And 30 years ago, I think a guy like Khan would be gone because there was no alternative. But now, being on the side of the world that he's on, there is an alternative. There is China and there is Russia. And I think you're seeing that um, the forces that are pro-Western, even if not necessarily directed by the U.S., the forces that are pro-Western are failing to win out against their own people at this point because you're seeing such a popular response to Khan that there's no denying that a lot of these people benefited from the social programs and the safety nets he put in, even as he was working under IMF loans, you know, it's, which is pretty impressive. And I think that there's a backlash to that. And I think that he's actually managed to stick it out longer than they thought because the world's a different place than it was when he did a coup 20 years ago. Speaking of the backlash, do you know, um, have you, are you hearing about protests? I was reading uh, this morning that there, you know, there was, there was protests planned, you know, talk about how you see the backlash and is that the backlash you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The protests are the backlash. And I think that the fact that they haven't stopped since the election shows that there's a sustained support and chances are people who needed the programs Khan provided and that the new government's going to try to strip away under austerity, you know, implemented by the IMF. Uh, people out in the streets, you know, they've managed to keep them from being arrested for a while there. They're doing pretty impressive and they managed to get a bail together. They managed to get a good lawyer. He got out. Um, you're seeing as sort of I don't, I don't want to put it like this, but a January 6th, that isn't stupid, right? And it doesn't <laughs> fail. Um, 
you're seeing Khan sort of keep. There's always this problem in America where people want to go home, and I think you're seeing Khan and people who actually benefited quite a bit from his presidency. They're out in the streets now. They're the ones keeping the you know the security forces and things like that who are notoriously corrupt in Pakistan. Khan wasn't wrong about that. Um, you know, you're seeing them respond to an actual popular uprising, whereas before they controlled that sort of popular anger by being friends with, say, like the Pakistani Taliban and things like that. That was an outlet for popular anger. But now, now that Pakistan has seen, again, and I, I believe Khan has a commitment to democratic governance in Pakistan. He worked to make peace with the Taliban, but not make them partners. Um, I think that you're seeing a sort of alternate version come up. And again, in the East, way too close to China, way too, you know, being sort of a real fear for India that Pakistan will become part, you know, part of China's inner circle. Um, and I think that these backlashes are just, again, it's the response to neoliberal austerity. You're seeing it everywhere, right? Whether you call it the Great Reset here or uh, a coup there, it's the same thing. And this is the thing is that the other countries have more staying power. So as we look at Khan and he was leaning and establishing closer ties to Russia, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so in this context, and I'm going to I'm going to use this very, very tightly in this context is Pakistan. Is this whole issue the Ukraine in Pakistan in, in terms of the United States intervening? And promoting that vote of no confidence because the United States does not like Khan's relationship with Russia, particularly as the United States was trying is trying to develop. I can't remember the name, the acronym for the group that Pakistan was a part of. So you get my point. Yeah, I think that there is a concern, but that's everyone, right? Everyone is going to be punished. Um, you know, the Ukrainian wheat not going out in the Russian wheat, not going out. Who did that punish? But the global South. This is just the U.S., you know, Khan is a big example of it, but he managed to survive with some type of support. It's like Chavez in 2000, right? Um, he managed to survive with some level of support that they weren't expecting, and they didn't think people would turn out for this because they think, you know, Pakistan is meant to remain in chaos. Um, it's a spot between Asia and our assets in Asia, you know, sort of Western Asia. Uh, it's always meant to be a sort of chaotic point for India. India is meant to be our anchor in the region against China. So having this state that's like Afghanistan supposed to be in a sort of perpetual state of confusion or just crooked, corrupt, and all these things like Ukraine, uh, I think you're seeing that these states that are supposed to be essentially the same type of proxies as Ukraine, they're not following orders, right? Yeah, um, the only NATO states we really love anymore are the ones that way over in Eastern Europe that say that Russia is going to attack them any day now, whereas all the Western European ones want to leave. Um, I <laughs> So I think you're seeing that backlash start to spread to the East, too, though, because the U.S. system doesn't provide anything for you. And, again, uh, before COVID, Khan had to take out an IMF loan. And I'm sure there's, you know, a man trying to work around that and find ways to still build some type of social safety program, give out money to people who needed it, give out food to the people who needed it, uh, you know, look to actually collect taxes efficiently, cut down on waste, uh, something like that. Building an actually functioning government, that was probably his problem. You know, that was probably his issue. And I think that the U.S. can't handle that because, again, uh, anytime a state bucks the U.S. system, you're either supposed to get it fixed with a coup, get it fixed with a war, or we're going to just tear it apart. 
Let me ask you this. You know, uh, I'm reading a lot of places. There are people very skeptical about the charges to be, you know, uh, judicious about this. Is this about stopping Khan, the most popular politician in Pakistan, from returning to power? Is this about we're going to, you know, do all of this, and then when he's, it's time for him to run again to say, well, he can't run because he's either was charged with this crime or guilty of the crime or whatever the case may be? Yeah, it'll be called Pakistan's Donald Trump over yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think what you're seeing right now is um, before Syriza rejected the deal for Greece, during 2000, you know, the 2000s crisis, mm-hmm. uh, 2010s crisis. I think you're seeing a moment like that. Where, but I don't think that, unlike Syriza and Greece, I don't think Pakistan is much. Your Khan and his followers have much of a reason to back down to U.S. demands because U.S. demands kind of got him out of office. Why should he now? You know, whereas Greece had this sort of, oh, maybe you'll be taken back into the fold. Maybe we'll treat you like a full European country one day. But that's never on the table for Pakistan. So I think that um, you're seeing something sort of like that, but there, I don't think there will be a breakdown like with Syriza where they have to stand on stage with Merkel and say, yeah, we're not going to do it. You know? And um, Khan has no reason not to be. I mean, he's been charged as a terrorist now. What's stopping him, right? What's going to stop the man? Uh, I think that the charges are definitely, they're bogus, you know, obviously. Um, he's a politician. Uh, if we wanted to charge every politician who said something threatening against their state, I mean, We'd have ones to charge here under the Terrorism Act. So uh, this is just an attempt to sort of like, like here, you know, our proxies learn from watching us, I guess. They want to keep the guy who's the most dangerous or at least has the most support out of office. Secretary of Russia's Security Council believes United States may default on its debt, according to Nikolai Petrushev, the financial assets of any state denominated in U.S. dollars and euros will simply be stolen. Talk about this because we've got the United States refusing to return Afghanistan's money. You've got Britain holding Venezuela's gold. Uh, This really just seems to be grand theft auto. Yeah, everybody's holding something to Venezuela's. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think that is something. Now, the question is, though, how does that happen with, say, larger states? Um, One of our principal bondholders, after all, is Saudi Arabia. Can you really default on that without, I don't know, causing another 9-11? Who knows, right? But I think these smaller states, again, this is the part of the punishment cycle. It is uh, you obey or you go under. Uh, Venezuela is the perfect example of that. Turkey's a good example. I mean, these countries that don't obey certain rules, they end up getting sort of, well, we're going to sanction you. We're going to sanction key parts of your economy just to try and tank you that backfired with Russia, obviously, because everyone needs the gas. But as far as Venezuela or somebody like that, or Pakistan, we think we can isolate these countries. And I don't think that we can anymore. You know, um, Venezuela started going to Turkey to get their gold refined. They started buying oil from Iran that they needed imported. Mm -hmm. Pakistan has plenty of other options. And I think you're going to, you're seeing that um, the U S is kind of panicking about that, but what, what we can do to larger nations like, I don't worry about the Chinese. I don't think they're going anywhere, but the Saudis who own most, again, most of our foreign bonds are held by the Saudis. How are you going to take those resources and not expect a horrible conflict to you know, emerge? Uh, or China. Be happening. Yeah. Because yeah, China exactly. holds a great deal of our debt. Exactly. But uh, yeah. And even just the allies who we rely on for gas and yeah, gas and consumer products. What are we going to do? You know, default on that and leave them holding the bag and just hope that, well, you know, we look very weak right now. We can't pay anything, but 
don't you know don't get push into our territory don't push into our side of the world uh just listen to what we say even though we have no power to back that up and i think that's you're seeing that more and more that's really what all ukraine is isn't it this is just a nation threatening a war over a country they have no way to even get access to without causing say maybe a nuclear conflict yeah. And, and, you know, the thing about it is, the U, you know, the U.S. has printed a lot of money and but hasn't spent any, spent any of it on their people. They print a lot of money, but it goes to corporations and it goes to the military. And at some point we'll be at the end of that line where they'll need to print it and it won't be worth the paper it's printed on. Uh, about 30 seconds. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing. I mean, the system is all it's, it's bogus, right? The directly relief payments under COVID were the first thing we got directly. Everything else, you go through a bank, right? There's you get a Fed approved bank, they loan it out to other banks, they loan it out to whatever bank you get, and then say so you take a loan from that bank and they sell it off to somebody else. It's a nice convoluted system where everybody makes money except you, the the borrower. So uh, yeah, I think um, I'd like to know where the rest of the money goes, but I think we know arms, uh, drugs, whatever the U.S. needs to funnel its wars, uh, to fund its wars, but I think we're seeing those days kind of come to an end. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune reports Venezuela's gold dispute in U.K. courts is a battle for sovereignty. The official government of Venezuela has been engaged in a legal dispute with the Bank of England to regain control over gold assets worth over $1.8 billion. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist and writer. Uh, He's the author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Under declared war. Daniel Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, quote, the world must know that there is no legal security in London nor in the Bank of England because at any moment any country can have its international reserves stolen. There is no respect for the law. This is a statement from President Nicolas Maduro. He made it in a televised address earlier this month. And this was following a decision by the British High Court to reject the Venezuelan state's access to its gold reserves. And all of this, while the White House finalizes theft of Afghanistan's foreign reserves, the government of Joe Biden has decided not to return to Afghanistan, their foreign reserves that are being held here in the United States. Your thoughts, Daniel Lazar? Well, it's just, you know, it's just a... a a case, yet another case of one law for the strong and another law for the weak. I mean, can you imagine if, there was, if the shoe was on the other foot, if, if Venezuela somehow had possession of, a, of Britain's gold reserves and had, you know, and had seized them because they, like, you know, they didn't like Boris Johnson or Liz Truss? I mean, it's, it's inconceivable. But, uh, but what's inconceivable in one situation is the norm in the other. 
I mean, somehow Britain's far right wing Tory government feels that it has the right to decide who is the proper, you know, president of 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 a of a sovereign country of Venezuela. Um, it's a completely arrogant move. It has no basis in international law. Uh, but yet Britain is doing it. It's getting away with it. You know, Dan, the other part of it, and we've had this discussion, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, how, uh, you know, in the long run, this is going to affect investment in the West. Based, You know, they've been snagging people's uh, sovereign wealth funds and making them disappear. Of course, you know, what's happened with Russia re- recently. And with this, they're simply saying, look, uh, um, we're going to keep your money. And whatever we decide, whatever lame excuse, no matter how preposterous we decide to use, we'll use it. And that's that, that in the long run, when BRICS and some of these other economic uh, uh, groups that are coming together start offering uh, uh, alternative currencies and these other alternatives based on these kinds of things, those are going to look very attractive and it's going to cost these people in the long run, Dan. Certainly, if I was Venezuela, if I was China, uh, if I was any, if I was Iran or any other country that is, you know, that is, that is senses it's, it's entering into rocky relations with the U.S. slash U.K., I'd be very careful as to where I put my, put my money. If I can interrupt you and throw this in yeah. to get your thoughts on this, here's the big one that comes to my mind: India. Because India is an ex, uh, is an aspiring world power. They have to look at Russia and China and say, we have the potential to grow like that. And if we do, the, we already know what the U.S. is going to do and what's going to happen to our, our money. So to me, India is the big dog that has to be looking at this, Dan. Yes, I think I'm sure that India is looking at it. I'm sure that India does not want to wind up in a similar situation to Venezuela. Um, uh, and I think that any other country, which, you know, which is, which is any country which is in, has any kind of friction with the U.S. and U.K. and France and Germany has got to be thinking along these lines because, because the U.S. is politicizing these international financial mechanisms to an, to an unprecedented degree. Uh, and it's using those powers in order to, to, you know, to, to bring pressure to bear on countries which fail to uphold the Washington consensus, as it's known. So, um, so yeah, I think that, that countries should be very aware of this. I, I'm sure they are, and I'm sure they are watching these, a case like this very closely. And the reason that I added the Afghanistan story to this story is because in the Orinoco Tribune, they write, the dispute over Venezuela's gold is much more than a legal battle. In the days following Guaido's self-declaration on January 23rd of 2019, the U.K. Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt was in D.C., where he met with John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. Uh, McAvoy explained explained that while the uh, documentation of these discussions has been kept private by the Foreign Office, in Bolton's book, the room where it happened, he details Hunt's visit and said that while he was in Washington, he said he would be delighted to comply with the U.S. sanction measures by freezing Venezuela's gold. Uh, this was the, the, the goal was clear to suffocate 
the Venezuelan economy and to create sufficient domestic pressures so that the Venezuelan people would overthrow the Venezuelan government without any more kind of dirty direct measures to have to be involved. Sounds very similar to President Biden talking about freezing Russian assets disrupting the Russian economy so that he would create unrest in Russia and Vladimir Putin would be overthrown. So what we're seeing here is a pattern of behavior, Dan Lazar. Yes. Uh, and, and John Bolton is the guy who a couple of weeks ago, you know, actually was was bragging, frankly, and outright about how the U.S., you know, how it makes coups in foreign countries. So, you know, so it really is one law for thee, another, you know, one law for me and another for thee, because, you know, because, of course, the U.S. would be like, you know, be up in arms and any kind of political inter interference in its own affairs. In fact, you know, in 2016-17, you know, Russiagate, you know, completely tore apart U.S. U.S. politics. And, and that was based on extraordinarily flimsy evidence of Russian interference in U.S. politics. But, you know, but, but the U.S. at the same time claims they could, you know, complete freedom complete right to interfere in other countries' politics as much as it may wish. Uh, I mean, it, it's a completely outrageous, you know, uh, you know, system, you know, you know, kind of international moral system in which countries like the U.S., you know, you know, quite happily and quite openly extol a double standard. Uh, and, and it's driving the rest of the world crazy. The rest of the world doesn't like it. That's why they're refusing to line up behind the uh, the uh, U.S.-NATO war against the Ukraine because they don't believe the U.S. anymore. They believe the U.S. is is clearly, you know, engaging in a double standard. Here's an interesting, again, uh, popularresistance.org. China is forgiving 23 interest-free loans for 17 African countries after already canceling $3.4 billion and restructuring $15 billion of dollars of debt from 2020-19. Beijing pledged more infrastructure projects offer, uh, and offered favorable trade deals in a win-win model of mutually beneficial cooperation. Dan, you know, having talking, having some friends that are Africans and Ethiopians, et cetera, and talking to them, it is very clear to me that the African people see the Chinese and the Russians as a better option to them than the imperial, uh, you know, coalition of the U.S. and um, and, and, and the neo-colonial countries of Europe. Your thoughts, Dan? It's absolutely right. I, mean, I think that a couple of things are going on here. Number one, Africa is in play these days. Uh, the U.S., uh, Russia, um, uh, China are all vying for influence, uh, uh, and the U.S. is losing. And it's very concerned, very worried, very upset. Um, and uh, and meanwhile, uh, uh, Russia and this Russia and China seem to enjoy, you know, substantial reserves of goodwill uh, in in those countries, you know, dating from back in the Soviet days. So uh, so yeah, so I think there's that there's a there's a there's a reflexive, you know, uh, uh, distaste for the U.S. And a reflexive, you know, uh, sympathy for Russia and China. And I think a, I think that China is very cleverly trying to, to you know, to further cultivate that sympathy 
by by uh, by canceling certain a small number of debts, which it can very easily afford to do. And in this popular resistance piece, the United States has turned Africa into a battleground in its new Cold War on China and Russia. And Washington has weaponized dubious claims of Chinese, quote, debt traps, end quote, to try to demonize Beijing for its substantial infrastructure projects for the continent. And so I think you 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 take the weaponization of these claims of debt traps, then you add to that the Gregory Meeks legislation sanctioning African countries who don't want to go along with the United States sanctions against uh, against Russia. And you've got also you've got um, the secretary of state traversing African countries last week talking about we're here for your independence and your sovereignty. But over the last year, the United States has backed seven coups. In African countries, I'm a little confused. I need your help, Dan Lazar, to clarify this because I just don't understand it. Well, I think that, I think I think your, your I think your bewilderment is entirely justified. Uh, I, well, I, I mean, please I, I, bring me out of the wilderness. Chris, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, first, first of all, first of all, the U.S. is the as the last country to be talking about debt traps because. U.S. slash IMF policy has been to shoehorn as much debt as possible into the third world, leading to repeated uh, third world debt crises. And, and one is now underway. That's what we're seeing now as interest rates rise in the, in the West. We're seeing growing signs of distress from, you know, from countries like Sri Lanka and Lebanon, but others as well are, are coming under under growing strain. So you know, and so Ch- and China's contribution, you know, in terms of indebtedness, is really minor. So the U.S. really has no right to complain. And the fact that it is complaining is again is, is an evidence of an obvious double standard, a a, a kind of a self serving diplomacy. Uh, which is nothing more than a transparent effort to demonize the Chinese and the Russians, you know, and and paint the U.S. in a positive light, even as though everyone in Africa knows that's not the case. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I mean, Africa is coming under growing strain, and I think the the chief responsibility lies in the uh, in the West with the U.S. and the EU. Last article, Dan. Latest opinion poll in Brazil gives Lula 47 percent over Bolsonaro's 32 percent to say that the U.S. is losing as though we owned it. Uh, the global south would be an understatement. Dan. Well, I think that 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 uh, that Bolsonaro is in big trouble. But there are there are serious rumors of a coup d'etat in the works. Um, and uh, and Bolsonaro himself has hinted at that. He sort of made various Trump-like statements uh, that he doesn't trust the electoral system, that it's rigged in favor of Lula, that it's not it's not worthy of support, uh, and therefore he feels he may be forced to take corrective action, which uh, is kind of like you know, uh, code code for a coup d'état. Yeah. Do, do you think quickly? We got we got about a minute and a half. Do you think that the elites? in Brazil would look favorably upon military intervention out of fear that military intervention puts the squeeze on them as well? No, I think they would welcome it. Brazil is a highly class stratified country. Mm-hmm. 
uh, stratified by class and by color. Um, and uh, and the the uh, the the ruling elite uh, is contemptuous of the of the of the mass of uh, of, of poor workers in the Brazilian population. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I think that that they would welcome a coup okay. d'etat, especially since you know since the alternative is, is Lula, you know, taking over the presidency. And and you know, Lula is a very mild version of his of his former self, but any kind of of reformist who was able to tap into popular resentment mm-hmm. of the Brazilian ruling elite is to that, as far as that elite is concerned, a highly dangerous development. Sounds a lot like the politics here. Yes. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. L.A. Progressive has a piece, Why Would Black People Laud the FBI or Criticize Protection Against Self-Incrimination? The FBI search of Trump's home has reawakened Trump derangement syndrome. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch, and he's the author of Ukraine negotiation kabuki, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. We we talked about this uh, late last week, but we're still seeing remnants of this in terms of you've got now, since the FBI went into uh, Mar-a-Lago, African-Americans and other liberals are now applauding the FBI, irrespective of their long uh, anti-left history. And you now even have instances where the folks on the right that were challenging the defund the police campaign are now advocating defund the FBI. Mr. Kavanaugh. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to see uh, how people can shift their principled, so, so-called principal priorities uh, as their own interests get in, in, in targeted. And, you know, this uh, Trump derangement syndrome, as Margaret Kimberly calls it, and we've called it, is something that really has turned, you know, what, what should have been and what was for the quote-unquote left for decades, you know, the suspicion of these national security authoritarian agencies like the FBI that carried on, you know, the worst kinds of programs, uh, MK Ultra, COINTELPRO, that were behind, you know, absolutely, they, they announced their anti-leftist uh, reason to be. You know, that was their that was their program, that was their goal. And now they've become, they became during the Russiagate uh, system, you know, the heroes of the left, and the so-called left of the liberals, and of many uh, black politicians, certainly. And, you know, because of Trump, Trump became the kind of orange sun at the center of the political universe that everybody had to kind of fly around and decide which way they were going around. It was just, and it's become crazy. And 
you know, you have this situation. I saw someone you know, tweeting out today, Trump is the first president who's ever called the FBI for to characterize their activities as as atrocious and criminal. And I said, well, about time someone did that, you know, so now you have, you know, the so-called liberals who were calling for defund the police a year and a half ago, calling for of what, what they did was they put more money into the police and have put more money into police. And you have the right wing conservatives calling for defunding the FBI and abolishing the FBI. And it's about time that we all took a look at this and decided what the heck we really want to do about this and what the FBI really is about and what these agencies really are about. And it's not, it's more about what we were saying for the past 50 years than what we've been saying for the past five. Uh, there was an argument that, you know, there's been a, you know, a long argument. The MAGA people are pushing anti-intellectualism, you know, Sarah Palin, et cetera. But what we're seeing now is kind of the liberal national security state people pushing an anti-intellectualism that says, do not pay attention to the issues. Only look at things through the lens of Trumpism. Is it bad for Trump or good for Trump? You can support the devil himself, the most evil things, things that can come back to haunt you in the worst kind of way as long as it's bad for Trump. And I say that's an anti-intellectualism because an intellectual, to me, intellectualism is about how you arrive at your conclusions and your positions. Do you have some kind of a logical way and is it based on some kind of evidence and some principle, some kind of a, a moral compass as opposed to, well, even though that's something that I would oppose under any other circumstances, since they're using it to get Trump, I got to now argue that it's, that it's a good thing, Jim. Where's Cheney? <laughs> I mean, talk about the devil herself. I mean, Cheney and McCain became the heroes of uh, the liberal Democrats. And uh, so this is exactly the point. And it's not just in politics. It's in science. We went for two years censoring doctors and scientists who wanted to question Mr. Science, Dr. Fauci. We've learned, you know, Caitlin Johnson did something yesterday. She said the left has been so... You know, they did such a good job of destroying the left that they destroyed even the blueprints about how to create one. <laughs> you know, you need to have open discussion. You need to hear from people. You you don't have a, a as you say, this is anti-intellectual of the highest order. It is one of the most dangerous things, what I call the epistemological crisis that's happened. If you can't hear from people whom you identify quite rightly as people you always or tend always to disagree with, if you can't hear uh, consider the fact that someone might be telling the truth who is not allied with your political position today, then you'll never have, you'll never reach the truth. You'll never reach, and you'll never reach anything politically effective because the truth has political power. Well, no matter who says it, you know, it's, um, I go back to the Malcolm X thing, you know, I'm for the truth, no matter who tells it. And that's what we have to be. And we've, given that up in a, in a very bizarre way. And we've seen with Russiagate, you know, Donald Trump was right. It was a witch hunt. Donald Trump was right about that, you know? And and the the uh, the, the liberals in Congress and the media who pursued this didn't care about the truth. They're putting now, they're putting forward, they're defending an FBI that was shown to have lied about this. And now they're pretending that there's no possibility they're lying now. There must be something there. They wouldn't have carried out this raid, just like there must have been something there or they wouldn't have gotten all those FISA warrants. You know, it's, it's they're demanding credulity on pe for people who are on their side and preventing you, forbidding you from thinking rationally and opening your mind 
to possibilities of things that really, and, and in, in fact, don't have anything to do with particularly a left program, where the Donald Trump, Donald Trump is not the left, and Joe Biden is not the left, and the FBI is not the left. This is all, you know, elitist infighting that's designed to dis- divert us from the politics and the policies and the problems that we have and that have to be addressed. And we know that the FBI lied on the FISA warrants to the FISA court. So if they can do that, they can lie anywhere. FBI affidavit may be roadmap for Trump lawyers, according to Adam Schiff. The department, the Democratic chair of the House Intelligence Committee said that public pressure to unseal the affidavit used in the search could put FBI agents at personal risk or be used by Trump's attorneys to intimidate witnesses. Jim, have we lost control of the country? I mean, you can't protect FBI agents and Trump's attorneys could intimidate witnesses. I thought that was illegal. I thought witness tampering gets you put in prison. Put the names out there. Let everybody know. And and let's move on. You know, and, and we talked about before the, the, the warrants became public. We talked about that. And you were saying, and I was agreeing, Trump can put these warrants public. Why don't he put them? So yeah, everybody should put the warrants public. And liberals are about to say, why isn't Trump putting the warrants public? So now the warrants are public. And now let's let's see the affidavits. Oh, we're going to protect sources and message. We don't want methods. We don't want people being threatened. Well, block out the names. You know, it's just that it. simple. It's, it's called a Sharpie. Use a Sharpie. <laughs> this is done all the time. They can put that out in a way that, that redacts information that would be dangerous. And that's what the legal process is. That's what happens all the time. So this is, you know, let's see what the predicate was for this search, <laughs> whether it was just, oh, he might have some documents that are still classified, or whether it was he's giving away nuclear secrets to the Soviet, to Russia, you know, which is the implication they're making, <laughs> you know, or some other thing, you know, it's, and we had real evidence of that. So th- of course, it, you know, this is exactly what happened during Russiagate. And but they go around saying, oh, there must have they must have had a good reason. They must have had a good reason. They would never have done this with even the Cuomo brothers, Bromario and Andor uh, Andrew, which one said, you know, if they if they did this on just a simple declassified documents thing, then that's that's a little weird. This is a unprecedented thing to raid a, an ex-president's house for for documents that they they were negotiating about. So it's. You know, this is these are these are excuses. You know, these are excuses, and it's very dangerous, as you say. These are agencies whose job it is to destroy the left, who have just in the same week they raided Donald Trump, raided an African Socialist Party, you know, uh, African American Socialist Party, mm-hmm. and that's what their job is. And we're only strengthening him for that. And uh, you know, the media didn't even touch that. You know, they they, they the only way they really addressed the issue of the African uh, uh, Socialist Party was the FBI claimed that they were working with the Russians. They then assumed they operate. When you read all the articles in the mainstream media, there was an assumption there. Well, the FBI said they were working with the Russians, so obviously they're guilty of working with the Russians. And what we see here, if you could touch on the media's responses to these things, is the FBI makes an accusation and it is unquestioned by the mainstream media. They simply assume, well, the FBI said it and they don't even treat it as an allegation. It is now guilty. Donald Trump is guilty. The African socialist uh, party are guilty as a result of that, and you don't get the pushback, uh, Jim. They've completely given up the idea of uh, purporting things in a 
relatively disinterested way in a relatively neutral way and letting you make up your own mind. Now it's the lie that Donald Trump said, you know, not the assertion that he made, which may or may not be true. And it's only on one side that they do that. In one side of the issue, they will, they, you know, if, you, if Ukrainian uh, uh, ministry or Zelensky says something, they will report it as fact. Later on, in another article, they might say, well, we didn't know that was fact at the time, but they reported as fact. Whereas if the Russians or Donald Trump or somebody they don't like says something, they'll say, uh, the Russians claim this, but you know, but there's also these other but, 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 but. So they report things differently now. They report claims that are controversial and should be questioned in different ways. Sometimes if it's the, the claim that they want to be true, they'll report it as fact. If it's a claim they don't want to be true, they will, if they report it at all, report it as something which must be questioned and taken skeptically. And, you know, this is just uh, something that's been kind of obviously going on, but it's been unnoticed, you know, and it's very dangerous. It, it's inuring in, in people to... Uh, the idea that this side always tells the truth and this side is always to be doubted. And as we get out, a perfect example of that is a story that we discussed a little earlier today, the assassination of Alexander Dugan's daughter. And the Washington Post headline is, Car Explosion Kills Daughter of Putin Ally Alexander Dugan. And when you talk to people who know Alexander Dugan and who know the issue, you know he never spoke to Putin. He's never advised Putin. He's not a Putin ally. But that's now the narrative that the West wants to promote in order to, in their minds, justify this horrific assassination. Jim Kavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.